It's David versus Goliath. David is an online platform called NetWealth that provides a single source of truth for all your superannuation and investments in a single app. Goliath, of course, is the Australian big four banks. Now, this story is a cool one. It's local to us in Melbourne, so local, in fact, we recorded it in a room all together for the first time in years. Our guest is Matt Heiner, the co-managing director, a business leader who talks microservices and AI. This is the Tech Seeking Human podcast brought to you by Data Robot. Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Seeking Human podcast. We're real. We're live. We're all in a room together. Hi. Doesn't this feel weird? We're hey, here. Hi. We are. Like we normally do a Zoom recording of some sort. So this is going to be the strangest opening to a podcast ever because normally we'd all be sitting sort of Zoom and you wouldn't be real and you're real. It's because that's very strange and you won't have my kids bouncing on the bed no. behind me, uh, my wife coming in and interrupting with lunch, which is great by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, or any of the other distractions that we're so used to now. Why don't you give us a little bit of background into net wealth, what you guys do? I, I didn't bother listening to my advisor. I just basically said, go for it. And we find out directly from the CEO how that works. So. Our, our favorite type of customer. <laughs> um, look, I, I won't spend too much time talking about net wealth, but uh, for, the, for the listeners, uh, we're a 21-year overnight success. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, particularly uh, since we listed, which was three years ago, and we can talk about that a little bit, um, you know, we have become far more uh, visible and our profile certainly increased. And it's always entertaining when we read the articles to hear about about you know, net wealth and overnight success when we have been chipping away at it for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, so net wealth uh, fundamentally is a, a technology platform that allows Australian investors and their financial advisors to uh, manage their investments. Uh, you can trade 16 different international markets. You can buy and sell shares on the ASX. Uh, you can buy a huge range of managed funds. And then we basically do all of the ongoing reporting, tax reporting, and make it really easy for you to understand what is going on in your financial world. Yeah, so it gives you that single view of everything that you've got from your super to your investments, the whole lot, right? Exactly. There are all the things that I absolutely love doing. Like I love looking at super more than anything in the world. Um, happens to be one of my favorite things. I shouldn't really be saying that at all, should I, when I'm talking about this? But you are a point of difference. I thought your aura ring was saying uh, that you're lying then because I, I don't often hear people say that they love super. Uh, my, my brother's a toy designer and you'd be amazed to know that when they ask him what he does for dinner, it's far more interesting than what I Way do. Way more. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, 20 years is a long time. It so did, was it software from the very start? When we first started, and I was actually talking to someone about it this morning, um, the idea was always to be an online business. Uh, and we launched 1999, which was at the sort of, oh, height, wow. of the height of the dot-com. Um, but at the same time, when we took our first product to market in about 2002, so we were out seeing financial planners, it wasn't uncommon to walk into an advisor's office and they didn't have a computer. Yep. Uh, and so we always knew at that point it was going to be a very short meeting. Uh, yep. And equally, um, you know, Dad and I, Dad started the business. Um, we would be sort of climbing under people's desks to plug in the modem. Uh, so people often say things haven't changed a lot. Uh, but I think because whilst there's been you know, massive change, and particularly in the last 10 years, a lot of it has also been incremental. So you don't sort of wake up one morning and things have um, changed dramatically. So um, we, we, we often like to reflect back on those times. Um, it was always set up to be an internet business, as I mentioned. Uh, the name Net Wealth, uh, Wealth on the Internet. Uh, we've recently rebranded, but the original logo uh, actually had a dropped E, which was to do with e-commerce. Yeah. Um, and you know, we often debate with people or discuss with people, 
are we a, um, a, a financial, uh, or sorry, a finance company or a wealth management company or a tech company? Yeah. Um, and you could argue it either way, but I think the reality is that any business in this day and age is a technology company. You can't get away um, with growing a business and, and being in business without using technology somehow in some part of your business. But you must have a pretty good point of difference to have survived. You, first of all, you survived the year 2000. Yep. So that's a pretty good start and the whole bubble burst and uh, you kept going, but you must have a pretty good point of difference to be successful in business for that period of time. Yeah, well, I mean, the first four, five, six, well, actually 20 years have, have been tough. Um, I think you know, with growth and, and success, things get easier, but never easy, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is really important for, for everyone to remember uh, and I often say, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the first uh, four or five years, when we launched, um, our competitors were people you probably never heard of, like ANZ and CBA and oh, yep. National Bank and Westpac. So uh, we had some fairly serious competitors that we're up against. And you know, typically, we would get feedback, you know, how are you going to compete with the banks? They've got yeah. very deep pockets, uh, and you guys are a startup. Um, you know, pleasingly, that switched now. A lot of the bank- banks are actually exiting wealth. Um, but for a, for a period there, uh, it was actually the other way around. So how are the banks going to compete with, with net wealth and, and some of the smaller players that are so much more nimble and agile and can actually develop new things? Um, we were once often described as being sort of a little battleship versus the aircraft carrier where yeah, our ability okay. to sort of pivot and change uh, actually gave us the advantage that we needed. And, and I think that's been a, a big part of our success, being able to um, speak to our customers and really deliver and build things that they want uh, and do it really quickly. And if it's not the right thing, we can quickly pivot and change and work on what, what has the highest value. Speaking of change, because technology changes, you're a technology company. Mm. there's a lot of change that goes in. Have you seen technology change more rapidly or have you had to change your business more rapidly as a result of this technology change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, When we look at different parts of the business, and I think there's a bit of a misconception probably in every business um, that software is sort of one big program. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're largely, we've moved to what they call a microservices architecture over the last sort of five, six years. Uh, So we're breaking down all of the components into smaller pieces. Um, And, you know, unfortunately there is still parts of the business that are monolithic. Uh, But when you start to look at each part of the platform, the reality is that it's probably got a shelf life of somewhere between three and five years. Uh, before the technology is replaced, or there's better ways of doing things, and uh, you know that could be AI, it could be just the programming language at the front or the back end. Um, so things are constantly changing. We're having to always upgrade the tools that we use to develop, uh, and you know might be uh, the way that the back office wants to process transactions. There's better ways of shipping that particular information around. Um, so technology is moving at a rate of knots, and um, it is it's an ongoing challenge to actually stay current mm-hmm. um, and to make sure that when we're looking at each part of the platform that if we were to double over the next two or three years, which we've been fortunate to do for, for many, many years, that that technology is going to scale with us. And, and the point at which it looks like it might not scale, we need to start putting a plan in place to replace it. Uh, and there's also a lot of uh, M&A activity in the software space. So we've had some core systems that have also been bought out by large American companies and, yep. and others uh, that suddenly end of life, uh, some of our key, uh, key forced systems. Forced innovation. Yeah, forced innovation. <laughs> so uh, suddenly something that you thought had another five or six years in it uh, has about 12 months in it. So you have to, again, be very agile and be able to roll with the punches and make sure that you can keep replacing and upgrading that technology to stay current and relevant. You can tell you're a tech guy when... You're a joint managing director and you're mentioning microservices. And I was saying at one point, I go, and monolithic applications. I was saying at one point, it's like, if I'm talking about Kubernetes and microservices in this particular podcast, we've done something wrong. But it's not the case anymore, is it? No, I think, uh, don't don't be fooled. Uh, I'm certainly not on the tools or cutting code, uh, but I think you need to know enough to be dangerous and to have yeah. a, a conversation or at least understand what's going on yeah. uh, because it is critical. And if you look at our uh, staffing now, 
somewhere between probably 40 and 50% of would be IT professionals. Uh, so downstairs at the moment, uh, we've got a whole floor of people you know, cutting code and designing new features and functionality. Um, and that's only gonna get bigger and bigger. And yep. I think particularly being a Melbourne-based company, uh, that's one of our challenges is how do we actually attract and retain really good developer talent when we are competing against, again, some fairly large brands like Seek and yep. uh, car sales or uh, CultureAmp, et cetera, so zero. Um, so th- again, that's forced innovation. We have to keep thinking on our feet and look at you know what we need to do from an um, employer perspective to, to keep everyone happy. Yeah, because everyone, developers are so hard to to get. Good developers are hard to get. They're hard to retain. What do you feel like you're doing that makes it an attractive place to work? Uh, so a couple of things, uh, and in response, I guess, to the shortage of tech skills in Melbourne, which is something I think as a state we really need to work on. Yeah. Um, we have recently set up a, a development team in Ho Chi Minh and Da Nang wow. uh, just pr- pr- prior to COVID. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to get over there for, for the obvious reason, so we found some challenges there. Yeah. Uh, but we've got about 30 people in Ho Chi Minh and about five or six now data scientists being set up in, in Da Nang. So that's been really interesting in running hybrid teams and, and getting sort of mixed skill sets. Um, but, more, but locally, I think a key for developers is that they want to be challenged. Um, so we try to make sure that whilst there's always going to be tech debt and BAU chores that you know people don't love working on, yep. that we can balance that with really big, interesting projects that are going to have an impact, uh, as well as providing a, a great workplace environment, uh, which again has been de- derailed during COVID, uh, and now flexible work. So uh, you know, how, how often or how long do people actually need to be in the office? How do you retain culture and allow for innovation and uh, collaboration, but equally allow people to work from their chosen um, environment where they might be far more productive? And we're going through a period as well at the moment where some people are going back to work and they're going back into the office and some people are working remotely. And so there's this hybrid situation. Are you sort of on one way or the other when it comes to collaboration? Do you prefer people are in? Do you prefer their home? Do you prefer hybrid? What's your preference? Yeah, it's really, it is changing and we're all going to have to just see what happens and sort of over the next 12, 18, two years, because there's no doubt that the way that we work has changed forever, Mm -hmm. that I'm very confident of. Um, So what we're currently looking at as a business is that we're uh, looking to have two Compulsory is the wrong word, but uh, mandated collaboration days in the office uh, once a week. Uh, third would be our preference. And then people that are lucky enough to choose their days, uh, we're saying can have Monday or Friday, but not both. Uh, now, that's not to avoid the four-day weekend. It's just yep. because we literally don't have enough space. So we need to be able to distribute uh, yeah, okay. the, the people across the workspaces. Um, and, we, and we think that's a pretty good balance at the moment. Um, if Mike Cannon-Brooks is listening, um, <laughs> I'm disappointed he's announced that you only have to go to work four days a year. Yeah, uh, wasn't that crazy? Yeah, that, that's going to put pressure on us at some point but I, I struggle with that a little bit I'm sure they've got ways to deal with it but you know culture is so important yep. and there is nothing like getting people back together in a room putting post-it notes up on a wall yep. uh, and debating things face to face which yep. you can lose those subtleties over zoom yep. uh, and, and to be honest you know people are fatigued if you spend a whole day looking at your screen with yep. a single focus yep. um, it can become pretty exhausting and I think even in that regard I'm going to try and stop doing zoom meetings after three because yep. I think it impacts sleep and some of the other things that uh, you know we take for granted and you know that because your aura ring is telling you that is that's exactly impacting your sleep correct telling but you what you already it's knew. a really good point because I think you even said some of your best ideas would be it, you, you might have a meeting with um, colleagues and then you're walking out of that meeting yeah. and back to your desk and you'll have this idea and you don't have that ability you switch off zoom and that's doesn't happen you don't have yeah. that collaboration mm. after the meeting even so it's just like little things like that it's your ability to go deeper yeah so like mm. you have an idea mm. and you go i think we should do this 
And then everyone would go, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And they all pay lip service to it. It would probably happen to you all the time as a managing director, right? Everyone would say yes to you. I hope not. Um, and then, a lot more people say no, which is all equally disappointing. <laughs> that's probably a good thing, though. <laughs> it is. It's a good balance. Um, and so then when you go to walk off, you then test that theory and go, do you reckon that idea was a good idea or yeah. not? And then the idea can spawn off somewhere else. But you, you can have that extra conversation that happens in the hallway that then your idea can come to fruition. And all the time when you work in Zermo, you work for another technology company prior to this, it would be like, well, let's circle back on that and have another meeting. Mm. And it's like you have another, another Zoom meeting and about the other Zoom meeting. Yeah. It wasn't Zoom, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've sort of come up with some statistics which are very rubbery and there's no real science behind them. But I think for the, the lost productivity, because you definitely yeah. lose productivity coming back into the office. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm thinking that by the time you put in travel time um, and you know getting to your desk, having the talk about the footy or whatever it might be, uh, you, you probably lose about 20%. Yep. Uh, but I think you make that back through spontaneous conversations or collaboration that you wouldn't have got otherwise. So I think it's just about trying to get that balance right. Um, I'm certainly finding that my routine is a bit all over the shop at the moment and, and I find that difficult. Yeah. Uh, but it's just while we go through that normalising process. Or not. Now, I want to talk about technology for a second because you mentioned a couple of things. Everyone shifted to the cloud and you did microservice and these. Were these the same sort of challenges that you had? Because you've got probably like data sovereignty things you've got to make sure of and stuff like that. Was mm. there any issues or did you shift most to a kind of a cloud environment or were you already there in the first place? What did you have to do? Uh, so we're operating a hybrid at the yep. moment, uh, but we're absolutely in the process of lifting and shifting up into the cloud. Yep. Uh, we're uh, fortunate we're regulated by everyone in Australia. So we've got ASIC, APRA, um, the ATO, uh, et cetera, et cetera, Austrac, and the list goes on. Um, so anything that we do, uh, there's always a very significant process that goes through. Yep. Um, APRA, understandably, is very keen to make sure that superannuation members' data stays on shore uh, and that it's protected. Um, so there is always a lot of work that goes into it and putting in, we recently, for example, put in um, Zendesk as our customer oh, yeah. service platform. Um, so to put that in, uh, you know, we're, we're working with APRA and making sure they understand where the data is and what the program does. Uh, and at one point it was suggested that maybe they'd have to go or we need to go and do an audit on Zendesk in America. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, part of it's education uh, as well as just making sure that um, obviously we're putting all the safeguards around the different data sets that we have. But um, the cloud is, you know, like every business, a big part of our future. Um, we're excited about it from a storage and elasticity perspective. We run a lot of data overnight and there's a lot of reports that will be much quicker and we can schedule yep. in different environments. Um, but the tool sets that you can get um, is really where it gets pretty exciting and particularly around things like AI and um, just pulling existing um, functionality and capability from the cloud rather than having to have it on-prem and buy in a whole lot of different products. Yeah, so is that one of the premises behind I wanted to get to AI? Because mm. that's the next realm of like you can get to the cloud, then you can you get a little bit more complexity, but you also get the scale, some automation and some intelligence. Is that mm. where you're wanting to go next with it? Yeah, absolutely. So we're a um, couple of things. We're, we're a Microsoft first house. Yep. Um, so if Microsoft doesn't have a product, um, we'll look for something else. But you know, Microsoft suite, particularly in the cloud, uh, is just getting better and better. Yep. Uh, so we use Dynamics. We're about to implement their marketing Dynamics site, um, as well as a whole range of other tools. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. A whole big part of our strategy now that we kicked off about two years ago, you know, it's, it's baby steps, but we're getting there, is really around data. So making sure that data sits at absolutely the centre of everything that we do. Yep. Uh, so we have, as an industry, more data than probably most other industries, bar maybe medical. Uh, so we know a lot about our customers already. And we're looking at augmenting that with a huge amount of other data. So looking at banking data, um, bringing through data from accounting systems, uh, mortgage systems, uh, and, and the list goes on. Once we've got all that data, we then need to actually do something with it. So there's a whole lot of really interesting opportunities that we're exploring. Um, some of them are internal, so using AI, um, which is probably 
maybe not strictly AI, it's probably machine learning moving towards AI. Uh, I think people use the wrong labels at the wrong time because uh, it sounds cooler. Uh, but uh, you know, for the sales team, for example, we're using a whole lot of different data sets to try and identify the best opportunities at any given time. So looking at things like engagement scores, size of business, where we've got presence, um, product usage. Uh, and we think that with whilst the numbers of financial advisors are dwindling at the moment, uh, it's going to allow us to see a whole lot of people, but make sure we see the right people so that we're being really effective. Yep. Um, equally, from a customer perspective, with the data set, we're looking at using all of that data to drive what we call actionable insights. Mm -hmm. So giving them uh, data points and information that they would not have necessarily been able to pick up or identify themselves. It might be around spending habits, uh, investment habits, how they compare to uh, other people on the platform that might you know, fit into a similar cohort. Uh, and then internally, there's huge operational benefits, and we're about to go live uh, with a new, sounds particularly boring, so apologies, but it's exciting for us, um, a document upload facility where, uh, you know, unfortunately, there is still a lot of paper in our industry. DocuSign's been a bit of a revolution, mm -hmm. uh, but being able to load up a document, we're using some, um, some Microsoft AI tools um, to basically scan those forms, um, look for any errors before it gets loaded, so the advisor or their clients have got the opportunity to fix the form before it gets to us. And if we can cut out three, four, five interactions and cut it down to one, much better client experience, removes a massive amount of friction and it's just more efficient for us and obviously drives costs down in the long run. So there's so many different examples of, of how we're using data and how we want to use data in the future. Um, and to do that, you've got to have it basically in the cloud and it's got to be in um, good. Do you trust the AI in the answers that it gives you? Look, we're probably not relying on anything to that extent yet. Yeah. Uh, I had a very scary presentation, I think it was from Deloitte the other day, around auditing AI and the answers mm -hmm. that it gives you. And and whilst there's some solutions out there now that are suggesting they can turn what is fundamentally a black box into a more opaque box, uh, you do need to be careful. And, and certainly I think if it came down to making really significant big company decisions, you'd want to have a really good idea of you know, what, what's the um, engine that's driving the outcomes and what the inputs are because they can be as equally uh, important as what the output is. So uh, I think it'll be incremental uh, and you know, we'll, we'll start with basically experimenting um, and look at you know for things like the sales team if they send us to the wrong person it's not the end of the world yeah um, so I, I think there's still a long way to go before you have confidence around what is coming out but equally um, there's a lot of machine learning that is very repeatable and um, the algorithms are well understood so you can have high level of confidence in that output yeah you're following like we've been talking to a lot of AI sort of thought leaders and I mean you know Yana as an example said she doesn't want to be considered a consultant but she's regarded as like one of these world gurus. And her advice was almost exactly that. When you, when you actually break it down really simply, she was saying, take baby steps. Don't mm. do it on your most important critical information. Yeah. Do it on the small things, learn from it, and then just keep evolving the process mm. along the way. So you're pretty advanced when it comes to doing these things. Do you, do you sort of benchmark yourself against others or is this just native to, to the way in which NetWealth's working and you guys are working that you just want to continually improve? I, I don't think we benchmark. I think, you know, if I was honest, uh, I think we've still got a long way to go, um, but like I said, we're probably two to three years into the journey and we recognised two to three years ago that if we didn't start, for every year that you don't start, whilst you might not be advanced compared to you know, the Apples and the Googles of the world, you're one yeah. year behind. Yeah. Um, and we certainly didn't want to be sitting here in 12 months or 24 months uh, still talking about this data strategy but not having implemented it because that, that lost time is going to be really important. And um, you know, with particularly, I think, with AI, the time in the market and the time that you're collecting data and the time that you're analysing data, that becomes your moat. Uh, and it becomes really important. So the sooner you can start, if anyone's thinking about it, uh, just get on with it. Yep.
Yeah, and it's a, you mentioned like the Googles and the Apples of the world and these sort of things because the consumer expectation today with anything that you're using, with any sort of software service, mm. is it's going to be that sort of experience. Do you feel that pressure or do you feel like do you kind of go into your platform and then using different experiences? You're not one of those MDs that then goes and meshes the development team and go, hey, guys, this is like nowhere near as good as me logging into Spotify and downloading my podcast. I do that, and it's something I've been talking about now for two or three years, um, is that whether it's us or financial advisors or anyone in financial services, they've got to understand that um, our clients and customers aren't comparing us to other financial planners or banks. They're comparing yeah. us to the likes of Netflix, Apple, uh, yep. et cetera, because your expectation of service is set by the last great experience you had. Yep. And as we know, that's most likely Instagram, Facebook, Google, because people are living on those tools. So if we can't, as an industry, match that, then we're already behind. Yep. Yeah, it's such a good advice. I can tell you, as a customer of NetWealth, it was a very good experience. Um, <laughs> I, did deliberately did it, I deliberately did a two-second awkward pause. But I do find we're, we're great in Australia. Like, I've been around the world and dealt with some other banks. And the thought of like opening a bank account in Australia just made me go, oh, my God, this is going to be the most painful experience in the world. And maybe because our experience of working with certain telcos and other services that aren't so great have made it harder for us. Mm. But from a banking and finance standpoint, like I've had an amazing experience. I don't know what it is about Australia and technology, but it feels like we're leading. Yeah, I agree with that. If you look at a lot of the banking apps these days, um, they're actually really good. Mm. Uh, they're not sort of overcomplicated. And I think there's also sometimes a confusion between good and simplicity or bad and simplicity. So I think what a lot of the banks have done is actually make their experiences uh, really easy to use. And it's actually that simplicity that is so hard to achieve. Yeah. Uh, and they're using technology really cleverly and invisibly in the background to make that a simple, good experience. If software is taking over the world, right, and, and, and is borderless, are there regulations stopping? Like, are banking apps are the best in the world? The net wealth experience is absolutely fantastic. What is then, is there any limitations as to why we can't expand and be the pinnacle of all financial services globally? Or are there actual restrictions that stop you from expanding? It's a pretty broad, mm. basic question. I don't even know if you're allowed to answer it, but. Oh, a lot of it comes down to regulation. So, yeah. uh, you know, America versus Australia versus, um, you know, a company. A, people operating in Asia, very different regulations. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of work that's being done to try and bring it together. They've been talking about the Asian passport for a while, which would allow, allow us to export our financial services and, and, and vice versa. Uh, hasn't been uh, sort of, hasn't landed where I think the government would have hoped. Uh, but everyone's trying to sort of become a financial centre and I think we're going to see a lot of change in that space. Uh, I saw recently that they're effectively now saying to overseas companies, if you've got a similar licence, uh, you can come and operate in Australia. Now, you can imagine everyone in Australia that's been working hard for their licence is thrilled about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, that might be the next thing that actually drives a lot of innovation again to say, okay, well, we've actually got some seriously big competitors coming into the country. Uh, we need to do something about it. Um, equally, people don't necessarily understand the nuances of Australia. Uh, our superannuation system, which drives so much of the financial yep. services industry, is very different to anywhere else in the world. Um, and it's not simple. It's very complex. Um, it's dominated by industry funds and um, you know, a handful of platforms. So I think it would be challenging for an international player to come in. Uh, they have in the past. They typically arrive try for a couple of years and realise it's all too hard, sell, close down and, and leave. So yep. um, never get complacent. Uh, it's the worst thing you can do, but it is challenging to, to basically operate cross-jurisdictional. 
Yeah, it's hard for people to get their head around so that they might be listening overseas, you know, particularly in the US as well, where I've come from. The superannuation over there is shocking compared to, um, what do they call it over there? The 401k. 401. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I had to leave mine there in the US. They wouldn't let me take it out. When I left the UK, oh, really? I was allowed to bring it back. Yeah. But the US were like, no, you've got to leave it here. And I don't think, I don't think I'll ever see it again. But um, even on the UK, I, I don't know if you remember how difficult that process was. Um, the Revenue Commission over there still required post. <laughs> Literally, you could not email. I think I did. You couldn't even fax no. them. You had to I post. think I did post it. Mm. Well, now, well, um, a bank in America posted a check to me for six dollars. <laughs> and um, how much which, would that have cost them? Probably twenty. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. And I took my phone. And Sorry. so, but I took my phone out and I took a photo of the check and uploaded it to the bank. The bank won't let me have an Australian address or phone number, so I can't contact the bank either. So that's another sort of restriction of just. It's absolutely mind-blowing, and I can't speak to him in regular time. But anyway, I digress. Speaking of regulation, what are you hearing in terms of blockchain? That's very new to me, and I think you as well. Blockchain or cryptocurrency? I get confused between the two. Which one's which? there you go. There's a question. Yeah, blockchain as a technology, I think, has got some really good applications. Um, Having said that, I think everyone, some people will see blockchain as the solution to everything, uh, which is definitely not the case. And as Elon Musk tweeted or commented the other day, uh, he's now worried about the consumption, the global energy consumption to, to manage Bitcoin. He's a smart guy. I'm wondering why he didn't realise that before he started spruiking it two weeks ago, but that's for another day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I've also been listening to a couple of podcasts. There's a great one Tim Ferriss does, uh, oh, yeah. and he uh, interviewed, I can't pronounce the guy's name, but VB, they call him for short, uh, who basically founded and came up with Ethereum, which is effectively the open source uh, blockchain that's been built for more corporates and uh, allows you to build programs on top of it. And it's, it's really impressive. And, and the way it, you know, it probably evolved a little bit like the internet where they launched it and they didn't really know where it was going to end up or how it was going to be used. And, they, and they've been stunned by some of the applications um, and particularly around, uh, they call it uh, De- DeFi, so De- uh, decentralized finance. So mm. they're looking at some really interesting products around sort of CFDs and uh, where you've got a stored value, so non-fungible coins that re- uh, replicate currencies. And uh, so people have been really creative and using it in a whole range of different ways, which, to be honest, we haven't spent a lot of time looking into, mm. but something that's happening on the fringe that we certainly need to be aware of. Is that on the radar? I was actually going to ask that question because I don't know whether it was passed in the US or the UK, I can't remember which country I was when I was there. I think it was the UK at the time. They were requiring them to open up the bank banking apps so that the banks have more third parties and developers could develop mm. into these applications. So you can transfer funds quicker, mm. you can integrate a new super quicker, you can yep. do all these different things. Is that something that comes across your radar now when, when you're running your platform and having to be more open and more integrated? Mm. Yes, that's obviously different to blockchain, and, um, yep. and uh, but it's uh, it's what they call open banking. Yep. So it's been in the UK for, for some time now. Uh, America's had it for some time and we're sort of feeling our way through it. Um, there's a lot of people that really want it and there's a lot of people that really don't want it. Uh, yeah, okay. And we were chatting about it yesterday, actually. So we're sort of moving down uh, what they call CDR, which I can't recall exactly what that stands for at this point, but uh, effectively having an open banking license. Yep. And that allows us to connect to, store, and then use banking data from other institutions. Yeah. So at the moment, we use a service that is called Illion, but there's a number of them called uh, like Frollo, uh, Basic, etc., which are uh, some of them are owned by the banks, some of them are independent, but it allows you to pull data from those banks and we pull data from about 170 institutions now using this solution so we can show you your bank balance uh, through the net wealth environment we'll be pulling through transactions shortly and then and then we'll start to drive those sort of actionable insights that we were talking about before um, open banking though as it sort of progresses and if it gets to where i think the regulator ultimately wants it to it'll allow you to uh, write transactions 
So potentially you could be in the Net Wealth app and decide that you want to pay uh, someone and that you want to do it out of your um, com, com, uh, Commonwealth Bank account. Mm -hmm. And you could write that directly from our environment. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really cool. And then it comes down to who wants to own the, you know, the desktop or the mobile app that's basically sits at the center of the client's financial world. So that's really interesting. Um, equally, being able to leverage a lot of the bank's compliance. So if the bank has done the KYC, know your client uh, and AML checks, that they share that. So then we don't need to do it. So we can say, well, the bank's already done it. We can open an account like that. Um, and equally, if we want to then move money and fund it from that bank, we can do it in a, in a couple of clicks. Yep. So then it becomes really competitive because it basically uh, means that whoever's got the best interest rate or the best terms or uh, offer at any given time, people will be able to, More without fluid. very friction, yeah, without any friction, basically move funds and banking around uh, at the click wow. of a button. So you can imagine what that's going to do to competition. Yep. Uh, it's going to be a brave new world. Yeah, I was going to ask there, so if, like really simple terms for a consumer perspective, what does it mean for like, because in my head I'm going, okay, so we can open up more of the banking apps. And I go, all right, my banking app, I can send money to people, I can pay for things on my phone, I can look it up, I can open accounts and stuff. What else mm. do I want? So you, you might want a better interest rate. Yeah, okay. Uh, you might want less transaction fees. You might yep. want better rewards for uh, spending with certain merchants. Yep. Uh, you might want a better experience. There's so many different ways in which um, that competitive sort of threat can permeate through the industry yep. uh, because consumers will have choice and it'll be really easy to move. So they, uh, everyone's going to have to be working really hard to deliver exactly what the customer wants. Yep. Okay. Makes sense. Then it comes back to then how you design your interface, how easy it is for you to Correct. use that interface because it's all based on software and then it all just goes around in a circle mm. again. And customised. So you want something that is highly customised to you. Uh, so having a static app that doesn't necessarily speak to you won't survive in the future. Now, I now got to ask you the big question. What are you going to tell your kids to do when they get older? Uh, as far as an occupation? Occupation. No, and with the shape of like... AI and automation mm. and software, where's your head at? Yeah, so they're, they're, they're pretty young. Uh, I've got to try and get my head around <laughs> what I'm going to tell them about Snapchat or Facebook or TikTok oh, or whatever yeah. that, whatever will be used when they're a little bit older. Yeah. Uh, we're already having problem with screen time uh, on yep. the iPad, so my, my son uh, will come and you know, sneak out of his room at five in the morning and, and start watching YouTube Kids or, or something else. So yeah, yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's a real challenge. And I, and I think my, from a, a financial perspective, and this is something I'm struggling with and, and working through, and we've got a couple of programs that we're, we're working as a business, uh, is that money's become invisible. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the biggest risk to our, our kids growing up is that back in the day you did a job and you got $5 or a dollar, or but it was tangible. You could actually feel yeah. the benefit of uh, the work that you put in. Mm -hmm. But now you want something to eat. You go into Uber Eats, you order the food and you press deliver. Um, you get in the car and go where you want. Uh, you, pre you go to the ATM if you are going to use cash for some weird reason. Um, yeah. And so trying to teach kids the value of money in an invisible world yeah. Uh, I think is going to create massive, massive challenges. So um, we're, we're very involved in a, uh, in a program called Banker. So if anyone listening has got kids between the ages of 8 and 12, uh, we fully fund it for schools around Australia. And it basically gives the classroom a virtual economy. Uh, they get their own bank account. They do jobs in the classroom, which then have a salary. They can apply for different roles. Uh, they can then spend their virtual banker dollars. Uh, but what, what was quite entertaining is they can also then, uh, they learn about superannuation, so they open up a super account, they can buy houses, insurance. Uh, wow. it, it actually came out of New Zealand and the teacher can trigger natural disasters like earthquakes. Oh. Uh, and so this poor kid bought three houses, didn't insure any of them and got hit by three earthquakes. <laughs> He's learned a valuable lesson yeah. at the age of nine. Yeah, well, the better one though is that on the way out of uh, the class one day, 
uh, the teacher said to the kids, oh, I'm just doing some maintenance tonight. Can I borrow your um, passwords? And so all the kids said, yeah, sure, miss, not a problem, and gave, gave the passwords. And the next day they came in, all of their bank accounts had been cleaned out. Oh, that's And so she said, good. that's your first experience of cybercrime. <laughs> oh, that is so good. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Ba- so, Banker, have, have a look. It's fantastic. And I'm hoping it gives kids the, uh, the financial capability to actually survive in this uh, invisible idea. money world. It's such a good that. idea, yeah, because mm. you, you can open a bank account for the kids, but it's just a number and they don't really get it. Mm. And I remember ages ago I was doing some work with a company that was trying to teach kids about financial uh, literacy and they said, take your cash mm. to a supermarket and give them the money yeah. and they have to walk around and then they see the money get physically taken away and yep. they go, oh, these yeah. things cost. It's not just this magic card yeah, or magic crazy. phone that just goes ping. Oh, now, go, sometimes I remember, like, I'm at the shops, yeah. my kids yeah. will say, mum, tap. Like, yeah. like, you know, yeah. as in, you know, that's how you, how Out you of the magical things. pit. But, but you're yeah. right. I give my son, he's earned $3 or whatever it might be, and then he goes down to the milk bar and he wants to buy lollies. I say, well, you can't afford that. And you can't afford that. Yeah. And it's, yeah, without that connection, yeah. it's very hard for them to work out what value is. And we're very cashless compared to the US. Mm. The US don't do a lot of tap. They, they're still running checks. Mm. Like I got a checkbook. Really? I had to Google how to write a check mm. in the US. Yeah, so still, so it's check. crazy. But they also work on tips too, right? So you just go through toll booths and you've got to physically give yeah. money. And you throw, so throw the money problem. into the little bucket. Yeah. So they, they yeah. have physical money in the US. But Australia is very – I don't actually carry a wallet anymore. I just have my phone and my driver's oh, license. Yeah, and that's it. Mm. And, and we can never do that in America. But then, yeah, for the kids, I love that. Mm. What was it called again? Uh, banker. banker. So it's B-A-N-Q-E-R. Okay. Oh. Yeah, and if you come to the NetWealth website, uh, there's a big um, banner ad on the homepage. So, uh, like I said, fully funded, and we'd love to get as many kids on as possible. There's around 8,000 children going through the program at the moment from about 250 schools. Yeah. Uh, but ideally, we'd love to see 150,000 kids going through the program. Well, congrats on a very successful business. Thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, I know it was, we were fun. crazy and all over the place, and but we appreciate person. your time. Yeah, it was very exciting. exciting. Thanks for having me on the show. Really enjoyed it. That was the Tech Seeking Human podcast brought to you by Data Robot. And for more episodes, just head to techseekinghuman.ai or check us out on any of the YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, everywhere.